What time is it? What time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Howdy, and welcome to the ABI 1.0 podcast. I'm your host, Terry Thompson. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, wait, wrong story. Let's try that again. So you want to know about the giant cover-up of UFOs and ET aliens, huh? Well, get ready for a wild ride. It all started back in the day when aliens first started visiting Earth. You know, before humans even had smartphones to record sightings and share them on social media. Back then, people were quick to dismiss any strange lights and weird noises as swamp gas or experimental military planes. But the truth is, the government was hard at work covering up these encounters. And then came the infamous Roswell crash. The government tried to play it off as a simple weather balloon. But we all know that was a load of bull. Those little gray aliens definitely didn't come all the way to Earth for a balloon ride. After that, the government had to step up their cover-up game. They created secret underground facilities to study alien technology and keep the public in the dark. They even had staff members sworn to secrecy under the penalty of death, or worse, being probed by aliens themselves. Fast forward to today and the cover-up is still going strong. The government sends out disinformation campaigns and employs people to monitor the internet and discredit anyone who claims to have had a close encounter of the third or actually any kind. They even have a code word for UFO sightings, unidentified aerial phenomena, to take away the stigma of saying UFO. But here's the kicker. The truth is out there and people are starting to catch on. With the advancement of technology and more and more sightings being captured on camera, it's getting harder for the government to keep the lid on this giant conspiracy. One day soon, we'll finally get to meet some of our ET neighbors and ask them why in the world they keep abducting cows. Uh, well, there has been a major whistleblower step forward to, well, blow the whistle. 
real quick, though. This whistleblower report uh, alleging that the U.S. military has been retrieving craft of non-human origin for at least several decades. Are we alone? And if we were not, would you even tell us? I would refer that question to the Department of Defense and let them answer that question for you. Go ahead. We have all seen these blurry videos of unidentified flying objects. Video evidence, if you will, that old tales of UFOs may not all be conspiracy theories. In recent years, Congress starting an official U.S. government unidentified aerial phenomena task force, recently renamed the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO. And now in a News Nation exclusive, David Grush, an Air Force veteran, former member of that task force, and veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, is formally blowing the whistle on secrets he says no one has ever shared publicly before. You are one of the most trusted former intelligence officials in the U.S. defense and intelligence establishment. Yes, I was. You were trusted with the most intimate secrets. Yes. Grush sitting down with award-winning investigative journalist Ross Coulthart, who's reporting for News Nation and has spent years reporting on the UFO question. What conclusion did you come to at the end of your time on the UAP task force? Uh, the UAP task force was refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft if you will, non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You're kidding. No. I thought it was totally nuts, and I thought at first I was being deceived, it was a ruse. People started confiding in me, they approached me. I have plenty of current and former senior intelligence officers that came to me, many of which I knew almost my whole career, that confided in me they were a part of a program, they named the program, I've never heard of it, and they, they told me, based on their oral testimony, um, and they provided me documents and other, other proof, that there was, in fact, a program that the UAP task force was uh, not read into. Grush alleges the U.S. government has recovered non-human craft for decades. He's filed a whistleblower complaint saying he gave what he calls the classified proof to Congress and the intelligence community inspector general. News Nation has confirmed David Grush's credentials and resume. We've not seen or verified the alleged proof he says he's provided to investigators. He says he can't show us the proof for national security reasons. He also tells us he's not seen photos of the alleged craft himself, but has talked extensively with other intelligence officials who have. If you're right, if you're telling us the truth, mm -hmm. everyone, the entire American public, has been lied to for decades. Yeah, there's a sophisticated uh, disinformation campaign targeting the U.S. populace, which is extremely unethical and immoral. You are saying to the human race, for the first time, an official intelligence representative at a high level from the U.S. government is saying publicly, we are not alone. We're definitely not alone. Absolutely, the data points empirically that we're not alone, yeah. Do we have bodies? Do we have species of Well, naturally, um, when you recover something that's either landed or crashed, um, sometimes you encounter um, dead pilots. And uh, believe it or not, as, fan as fantastical as that sounds, 
It's true. It appears David Grush is holding cards close to his chest, and I don't blame him. Considering his allegations, there's a lot at stake in this game. And I hate to tell you, but the other players like to cheat. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done. So... Just how credible is this whistleblower? I mean, what's his street cred? Time to find out who's getting in the game. It's us live now, Ross. Incredible interview. Um, you know, we checked into David Grush's credentials. We did our own due diligence here at News Nation. All of his credentials uh, stack up, but there's nothing like actually sitting down with someone, looking him, them in the eye for hours face to face to really get a, get a read on them. Why do you say uh, that David Grush is so is so believable here? Look, the most persuasive thing for me is the simple fact that I was introduced to Mr. Grush by people who told me about him from within the legacy UAP crash retrieval program. I, I wrote a book about this subject a couple of years ago, and because of the contacts that I made in the course of researching that book, I became aware of the existence of the crash retrieval program, and I became aware of the existence of Mr. Grush, who was basically conducting his investigations for the UAP task force. I've known about him for some time, and many people have vouched for his credibility, and indeed, I've, I've heard nothing but good about him. The number one thing that I've heard, Ross, my friends have been texting me for the last hour. First of all, they've been riveted by your interview, uh, but most of my friends have texted me, uh, look, I'm skeptical because I want to see proof. I'm going to remain skeptical until I can actually see some evidence of this. I can assure you and your viewers, Mr. Grush wants you to see the proof that he has seen. The difficulty is that the crazy thing about Arrow, which is the current investigative body that is supposedly charged with investigating the phenomenon, is that the Congress has mandated that the public get to know the truth, but the Pentagon has neutered the very body that it's trusted to do these investigations. It doesn't have the Title 50 classified information access that Mr. Grush had. Because of Mr. Grush's extraordinarily high security classification, he was allowed to see, hear, and read things and talk to, talk to people who Congress isn't even allowed to talk to, and who members of Arrow, the Pentagon's supposed UFO investigation body, aren't allowed to talk to. And so he wants you all to see that evidence. And so that's the reason why he's gone to the Inspector General with his reprisal complaint, who referred him on to the Congress. And he's given evidence detailing all of that information to the extent that he can to those confidential committees in secret hearings, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And it's that information that he now wants brought out, hopefully in an open, transparent public hearing. 
it's a good point you make that Arrow, uh, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, they're the ones who are supposed to be investigating the UFOs. He claims they don't even have the information that they need. They don't even really know what's going on. But but I've got to ask you, um, do you I mean, you've been studying this stuff for a long time. Do you believe everything that he said? Because I kind of walked away from it thinking like some of it I found to be believable. Other parts I felt more skeptical of. Um, do you think everything he says is truth? Look, it's ultimately impossible for you and me to test his claims. What he wants is for his claims to be tested. He wants us to be skeptical. The reason he's come forward is because he's frustrated that what's happening at the moment is the Pentagon, frankly, is engineering a cover-up. It's lying to the American public. I can say that because I'm an Australian. Throw me in jail if you like. But the simple <laughs> fact is, your Pentagon, your Department of Defense is lying to you. And I know that because I've spoken to people in the program who tell me that what Mr. Grush is telling you is the truth. And the huge frustration that he and indeed some of his own colleagues who are still in RO feel is that you, the American public, deserve the truth. Now, the thing that I really respect and admire, I, I trained as a lawyer as a younger man, and I love and respect the American Constitution. You have transparency, transparency and accountability controls in your Congress that are absolutely magnificent. And people like Dave Grush, he's only one of an enormous number of people who have now come forward and indicated their willingness to give evidence to the Congress. They've given evidence in secret to those committees in the Congress. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! It seems the cover-up has been going on a long time. With the government even employing high-level detractors, dismissers, debunkers, to the point of even trying to convince thousands of people they can't believe their own eyes. The experience that you just had and you just witnessed, just a bad case of gas. In 1968, the UFO subject was being debated at the highest levels of government. The debate was triggered by a major sighting over the state of Michigan. I see the light on either side. And then the red light was sort of casting a glow over the whole thing, so it looked like around this. When it got to the top of the trees, it stopped. And a, a blue and a white light come on it. Good evening. Walter Cronkite reported the incident on CBS. Residents of the area saw it. The police saw it. Sergeant Newell Schneider of the Sheriff's Office remembered it well enough to draw it. What do you think it was? Well, if they call it a flying saucer, that's what it is. The Air Force sent its consultant, Alan Hynek, in to review uh, what had been going on. And Heineck, uh, after about one or two days in the field, had to face a big press conference. He said, well, I don't know what was going on. It may have been marsh gas. A little bit of swamp light appears here. It goes out. Another one appears over here. That goes out. Then. And, but the illusion, as viewed from a distance, is that the objects have moved back and forth. The public was absolutely uh, furious, and the press kind of made fun of it. And... Uh, Congressman Ford of Michigan uh, thought that he would take action, and he called for public hearings by the Armed Services Committee. 
this matter should be brought... In an exclusive telephone interview, the late president, Gerald Ford, confirmed his involvement in the investigation. I undoubtedly wrote Chairman Mendel Rivers of the Committee on Armed Services that such an investigation be taken. Congress heard testimony from a number of witnesses. Former Marine Corps Major Donald Kehoe asserted that there was far more to UFOs than swamp gas. In fact, the Air Force at one time had a top secret estimate that these things were interplanetary spaceships. Today we have over 10,000 cases at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, of which 646 of these remain unidentified. The Air Force has been accused from time to time of hiding information about UFO. What do you have to say to that, Colonel Patrick? Well, these charges are absolutely untrue. The Air Force continued to maintain that it was hiding nothing. And we've always honored accredited media when they wanted to investigate a given specific sighting. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide at all. Oh, I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up this morning. It's not like we can say that we weren't warned at one point or another. But I wish Ike would have just come right out and said it instead of just hinting around. I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The late Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii said it best. He pretty much laid out what the pot was in the game. High stakes indeed, our personal freedoms, and who's in control. But should we, in the defense of democracy, adopt and embrace one of the most important tenets of communism and Marxism, the ends justify the means. This is not one of the commandments of democracy. Our government is not a government of men. It is still a government of laws. We'll get into some more whistleblower testimony. And you better hold on to your socks because they have some shocking revelations when I return. to be most popular not in a rush not to be real bourbon no apologies if it's for you you'll know ah thank you wild turkey it'll find you I'll be a turtle. Sit out on a log all day. There's nothing much to do. Sit and watch the 
feeling sluggish and slow like a turtle in a shell? You don't have to drag your feet anymore with the help of Token Turtle CBD in Aranda's Pass, Texas. Their store offers a wide range of CBD options including flour, pre-rolls, edibles, relief rubs, vapes, and more to help you move and groove with ease. And the best part? CBD has been known to help with skin issues, inhibit cancer cell growth, stress, anxiety, PTSD, epilepsy, and even lower your A1C. So say goodbye to sluggishness and hello to a new zest for life. Visit Token Turtle CBD at 361 South Commercial Street, Suite F, or check out their website at shoptokenturtles.com to learn more. You can even give him a call at 361-434-0063 if you just have any questions or just want to chat with the friendly staff. So why not come out of your shell and see what all the fuss is about? Token Turtle CBD is available seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., so there's always time to give them a try. Plus, who knows? Maybe you'll discover your inner zen turtle. I want to be a turtle. Today, the 1.0 podcast. We really like to hear from our listeners. Email or voicemail. Also, check out our Facebook page. Surf's up. Got a boogie. Do a better feel ago. against you, so I think I better than you. Boys, man. My name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet and you're gonna regret I'm the best it's ever been. Johnny Rock, up your love and play your fiddle hard. Daniel Sheehan of the uh, Justice Department, in his testimony, shows that the devil's in the details when it comes to finding out about the covert cover-up surrounding UFO UAP activity. And so the, I realized that at that time there were these, there, there was this dimension, uh, such as the Dr. Greer has talked about. There are levels of classification that are way beyond people in the Congress, way beyond us as civilians. But I spent a lot of time looking into this whole process. And as you know, I, I was the one that filed the original Iran-Contra case that got the special prosecutor appointed. We uncovered all the smuggling of the weapons that were going on, the cocaine smuggling operations that were going on. It became clear to me that Everybody knew about this, that all kinds of people knew about this going on, but the citizens didn't. And as I tried to bring information to some people in Congress and the Senate, et cetera, talked with Tip O'Neill about all of this, and, uh, and we, we, as I discovered all this stuff was going on, I was then later contacted by Dr. John Mack, as I told you, to represent him. And I was aware of the fact that there was this realm of, of ultimate secrecy that existed. But I realized that there was a, a classification above everything that I'd ever seen uh, that was, that was a, cosmic, a, a cosmic top secret. There's a whole category of cosmic top secret that has to do with this particular category. And that there's information in there uh, about contacts with, the, with the, these beings that were recovered uh, from Roswell, a, a living being, one particular living being that they brought to Wright-Patterson, that uh, they didn't know what to do with the, with the being, they didn't know how to take care of the being, they had to keep the being isolated, they were afraid of potential contamination. And I've, I was challenged at that point to try to determine whether or not uh, I would reveal 
these things to everyone. I kept trying to have contact with people inside the intelligence community to say, look, at, if there's something that you think I ought to know that would convince me that the American people somehow shouldn't know about this, tell me about it, will you? Because if you're not going to tell me about it, I can tell you I'm going after it. And I'm going to be going after it in a context that may make it automatically available to anybody once I get it. And, uh, and uh, only a couple times was I ever approached and said to stay away from these things. Well, that's not, a, that's not an answer, you know, just to stay away from it. And so the, what, what I've done is I've, uh, I'm just coming to you today to tell you that with my experience uh, directly as one of the attorneys in the Pentagon Papers case, I was in F. Lee Bailey's office when we did the Watergate burglary. It was our office that got uh, McCord to write the letter to, Jane, to Judge Sirica, blowing the whistle on the Watergate plumbers. Uh, the Karen Silkwood case with the smuggling of the plutonium, uh, the Iran-Contra case with all of that, the smuggling of cocaine that was going on. So, but nothing, nothing matches this issue. Nothing comes close to matching this issue because the reality of it is, is that, that because whatever this extraterrestrial intelligence is, uh, they obviously share the belief that somehow we shouldn't be just told right straight outright. As people have said, you know, why don't they land on the White House lawn and just tell us? So there is obviously some type of consensus that exists at the highest levels of the security, the cosmic top secret clearance in our government. And, and when I asked Gorbachev about this, because I was legal counsel to the State of the World Forum for Gorbachev and Senator Baker at the end of the Cold War, he told me flat out that these things existed and that they'd known that these existed and they were in communication with the United States government about this. Uh, and that, so what I'm saying is that, we're, that we, we need to, as citizens, be insistent upon finding out about this unless and until somebody communicates information to us that makes sense as to why it is that people all shouldn't know about this. Well-known UFO investigator Dr. Stephen Greer put out an open call for whistleblowers to come forward and tell what they know. And it makes sense for someone to do it as quickly as possible because the protections offered won't last forever. What I'm saying is that we really need to have people come forward now. I'm, I'm actually begging people. Um, we've worked so hard to get it to this point and it's, uh, it's, it, it really is, I know that most people who, who have come forward they were involved for a brief period of time or they were in an office here or at a skiff there or at a, a military facility or a corporate research project and they don't know necessarily this whole picture and so they're not culpable they're not guilty of having done anything improper they were doing as they were told and they thought it was all being run properly legally it wasn't so they were used, um, and I think that they're, that's very important. And so they have no liability. Black ops and covert cover-ups are believed to be carried out by a variety of agencies, including the CIA, NSA, and DIA, and unregulated forces such as private corporations, clandestine military units, and even extraterrestrial beings themselves. It's also believed that these agencies use a variety of tactics to maintain secrecy, including intimidation, blackmail, and threats of violence. 
Despite the efforts of these agencies, there's still a growing movement of researchers and whistleblowers who are working to bring the truth about UFOs to light. They believe that the public has a right to know the truth about the existence of extraterrestrial life and the technologies that they possess. However, they face an uphill battle against the vast resources and power of the agencies involved in the cover-up. Former Marine Michael Herrera illustrates this in his testimony. What I'm about to tell you hasn't been something that I've disclosed until recently in the help of Dr. Greer, among other people, so I appreciate your help with this. In 2009, we were, my unit, which was uh, most decorated infantry battalion in the entire Marine Corps, which was 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, was called in to do humanitarian assistance operations out in the Philippines, which was Operation Kitsana which we were attached to the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit, which conducts maritime operations all throughout Southeast Asia in conjunction with the 7th Naval Fleet, which houses one uh, landing helo deck or LHD among LPDs, which is what I was on, called a uh, USS Denver. Ironically, that's where I'm from, so kind of felt like home. Now, um, during that operation in Kitsana in the Philippines, they had actually heard that a tsunami and earthquake hit the western part of Sumatra, which is western Indonesia, uh, Padang City more specifically. Out of all the ships in the 7th Fleet, the ship I was on was the only one that was routed to that location, which was oddly strange, but then again, this is my first humanitarian operation, so I don't know the logistics of it, but uh, the skipper of the ship would probably know that information. So um, this happened September 30th. We end up getting called and dropped anchor around October 8th. We are briefed in the ward room, which is the officer's mess where they eat um, like their cafeteria per se. We're briefed that there is some of President Obama's family members that are present on either in the city or somewhere near there. They had a SEAL platoon that was ready to go to retrieve those people. Um, Us knowing well that uh, Indonesia is also the second largest terrorist capital where they train these guys, and they'll send them up to whatever theater of operation where anybody wants a piece of the United States, they can they ship them up to go handle it. So we know that well, and um, we were then briefed that we were going to be armed during this operation just to also provide security for the transportation coming to basically drop off uh, medical supplies, sheltering items, food, purified water, things like that. So. Um, They ended up selecting certain Marines to go ahead and do this. We were only in sticks of uh, six, six Marines, so it had uh, NCOs on top of uh, other Marines to help with that. So we again boarded uh, CH-53 Super Stallions, which are gigantic helicopters that are roughly 100 feet long. Uh, I love the design of them. It's my personal favorite. Um, We ended up boarding this on the ship, and we flew to the southwestern part of the city, which is Padang looked a lot uh, different through satellite imagery that I've recently seen back then is a lot different, especially because most of it was decimated on fire, rubble, flooded, you name it, basically the worst kind of scenario you could ever see. From then, um, once we touched down on this landing strip, it took probably about two minutes. Um, and then again, the pilots got radio confirmation to go ahead and drop us into certain parts. So we again dropped to a hasty LZ, which took probably about six, seven minutes to fly to from that position. And uh, we dropped to a hasty LZ, 
We got off the bird, and what we were instructed to do at that point through the briefing was to push to a high ground at least to get better observation. As a Marine, the tactical advantage that you get from having a um, you know, observation from a top point is you see everything clearly. You could also you know, coordinate from there. At that time, we had did a tactical column, which we were able to get eyes on pretty much everything, especially with six Marines. So we have the effective uh, communication at that point. If we need to engage, we can properly do it within the amount of ammunition we've got, as well as the weapons that we got, which were only M16A4s. So at that point, we decided to push forward. We trekked up about 300 meters. At this time, I have a Panasonic camera that has the ability to take photographs. It has a, a you know, ability to take videos, obviously. When we got to this high point, I was taking video camera and I had actually turned to the north, which just kind of slopes down. And right there was something that stuck out like a sore thumb, especially with jungle terrain, things like that, junk, you know, vegetation, very green stuff, was something that stuck out so well. It's always gonna be basically imprisoned in my mind for the rest of my life, and it has been for 14 years, was something that was rotating and it was transitioning between colors like a light uh, matte gray, as well as a dark matte black. So in between, that's what it kept, and it was very smooth. We had uh, all looked at each other as we got online, and we decided to investigate. The further thing I want to say is that I actually took pictures and video of this before we actually trucked down. We had a dump pouch where we basically, if we expend ammunition, we want to retain our magazines, so we put those there. So I dropped my camera on there. Um, and we decided to go down. We didn't have any communications, which was weird, and that was a very odd thing, and it's something that either could have been good that we didn't, or it could have been something that could have been very bad. Um, and it just how, however you want to look at that. Once we got down this slope, we were approximately 150 meters away from this craft. When I got to the, when we all got to the point where we could see it, just like behind here, again, Mr. Shratt, phenomenal job. You can see that the craft here actually had uh, was roughly about 300 feet. And the reason why I know this is because you can fit three of the helicopters that we flew in on underneath this craft. It was rotating a, a clockwise motion. The panels here that you see, um, the black ones, at least three of them, was like a vanta black, very dark. I have no idea what that was. On the very top, there was like a pyramid structure that you could see the shadowing of it, which would elicit that was a pyramid structure. And it had an audible hum to it. Um, kind of like a guitar amp, if you were to unplug that, or like a transformer, it's very audible. If I was to hear that sound again, I could tell you, okay, it's probably this thing or something similar to that. It's very distinct. And the way that it was floating, which was about 10 or you know, 15, 20 feet off the ground, it was kind of a very eerie thing to see because I've never seen anything like that in my life. When we got up to that point, we were then intercepted by a team of um, soldiers or um, rogue military force, if you will. The most concerning thing about this is they all had American dialects. They had American gear. They had OTVs, black. They had black camouflage. They had very similar setups to what we have, but more high speed, something what you would see special operation, operation groups these days have. They had no insignias on. They had no ranks. They had nothing that would signify who they were. They had black ball caps. They had M4A4s that were equipped with ACOGs, which was a step up from what we were currently issued, as well as PEC-16 IR illumination devices that you use for night vision and uh, night patrols, things like that. So we were engaged. We had eight of them drop 
put the drop on us. You could audibly hear them blow the safety selectors off. They basically started screaming at us, telling them what we were doing. We were not allowed to be there. Who were we with? What were we doing there? Um, threatened that they could kill us right then and there. We could get lost in the jungle. They could throw us out of a helicopter if they needed to. Um, it was very nerve-wracking at that point, especially looking to my fellow Marines and seeing the reactions on their faces, too. We were all freaking scared, uh, to say nonetheless. So with that being said, each Marine was then patted down along with myself. We were, had our weapons taken from us. They were basically cleared in condition four, which means they had no round chamber, no magazine in. They dumped our magazines out of our mag pouches as well onto the deck. And then again, um, because of Marine Corps order, how things are with that, we were told to keep our military ID in our left breast pocket. So they knew that. They asked for our military identification. We gave it to them, obviously, because they have guns in our face. So provided that to them. They had something that looked like modern day uh, smartphones, but this is 2009, so it's not really as high tech compared to obviously today. So they took some pictures of our military ID and then they had something to remind me of a BAT system, which is a biometrics tracking system that we ha we would use. Um, this is for insurgents or anything like that. It would take fingerprints, it would take retina scans, it would take pictures of them and document them. So if there's other militaries that were coming to relieve our post, they would actually have this information too to know who they are dealing with. That's what it reminded me of and I had trouble scanning the IDs. Um, as this is going on, we're going back between these guys as well as what's going on in the background. At that time, there was four of these trucks, which were uh, F-350s. They were up armored. They were pretty beefy. They had um, weapon cases that I've seen before because of something that we've actually loaded weapons into. They had two of them that were in the back of each truck. They also had these containers that was illustrated right here, which come to find out through recent relevations from yesterday from uh, somebody who came forward to Dr. Greer. I don't know who they are, but what they had told him and what he has told me is that this gentleman knows exactly what these were used for because they had like a cylinder on the front, which is either for oxygen or what I hypothesized was for vacuum sealing, uh, which believe me to um, suspect that they were smuggling narcotics or drugs. Um, come to find out it's more disturbing than that. Um, this gentleman has first-hand account with this and says that it was for people. It's very disheartening, especially because that part of the world have already gotten ravaged and it's something that is very hard to see right now because of what I've witnessed and it's very disheartening. And this is why I'm up here. So they loaded these onto this uh, platform that you can see right there and as I got up there, um, like I said, I was going back and forth. Uh, these guys are still searching our stuff. They're still, you know, pointing their weapons at us. And uh, after the last two trucks that I saw that actually got onto that platform unloaded, they had four guys in each truck that would unload everything. However they did it, I can't tell you because, again, I was focused on this as well. And um, these trucks drove off. As that happened, this platform actually rose up off the ground itself. The top part of the craft actually met it down in the middle like this and uh, formed into one solid piece. Um, it floated right above the tree line. As soon as it was able to break that tree line, it actually had the on the corners of each of these, which was an octagonal shape uh, craft, by the way. On each corner, it emanated a light. It was either red, yellow, green, or blue. Only those four colors I can distinctly remember. It didn't make any additional high-pitched sounds when it rose up. Once it got past that tree line, it shot over to the left, basically where the ocean was, 
at a rat, uh, so fast, um, I would estimate probably three to four, five thousand miles an hour instantaneous like that. Uh, there was no rotor wash, no exhaust that would disturb the trees, vegetation, the coconuts that were on these trees were not even touched. It produced no sonic boom. This thing was so fast. So um, as that happened, they basically had told us to turn around. As we turned around, kind of a couple things that went through my head at that point was that we're done. They actually started loading our magazines into our vet, um, back into our vest in a way that would be hard to get them to put them into a weapon and to actually, you know, charge a weapon and actually put it around in the chamber. So um, they put those in. They actually slung our M16s on their back for us, but when they did it, Marine Corps has not really issued the best gear, especially at that time. So the slings back then were, I would say, subpar quality. Um, cut my neck pretty good, and they you know, kind of went in that motion and made sure they were secured so we couldn't really get them as easy. And um, they escorted us back up this slope. And they one, they told us they were not going to, we were not allowed to look back. Two, that we were not able to talk about this. They were actually, two of the guys um, were actually talking about either, hey, should we smoke these guys right now? You know, that's what they kept saying. It was kind of feeding more into the fear at that point because, again, I don't know who these guys are. I know they had American gear. They had American sidearms as well. Um, if these guys have um, actually taken an oath like we have and then why they're going against people like us and even willing to kill um, servicemen who just even stumbled onto this, it just blows my mind and it's very sick. So as we broke atop this hill, we decided to book him. And we ran back to the LZ. There was a gunnery sergeant that was attached to the ship. I don't know this gentleman personally, but I know he's very unhappy with seeing us because we had actually had our weapons slung. We were not combat effective at that point. If we needed to be, they asked, uh, he asked specifically why we were. We didn't tell him exactly why. We just came up with an excuse. And then um, we waited for the next CH-53 to approach and we got on board, flew back to the ship. We turned our weapons in back to the armory. We took our gear off back in our berthing and we went upstairs to be debriefed by an admiral that I've never seen before. And it was kind of somebody who was out of place. I don't know if he has any kind of um, relevance to this at all, but if that's the case, if he does, I hope he comes forward with that information. It'd be very helpful. So as uh, we're gonna go ahead and fast track to a couple days later, which we end up in Subic Bay, which is like the party town in the Philippines. So um, we had three days there of Liberty. The first night I come back, because we had to report back to the ship each night, we were not allowed to stay out in town. Um, my rack was on my cam, or my camera was on my rack, and the memory card that was in it was out, and my battery was out of the camera, missing as well. So all of that was missing. cover-up of the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrial life is a dangerous game that the government and its agencies have been playing for years. By keeping the public in the dark about the reality of UFO activity, they are denying people access to information that could help them prepare for and mitigate potential threats. It's important to understand that the stakes are high and that there are real dangers involved in keeping the truth hidden. One of the primary dangers of the government cover-up is that it limits the potential for scientific research and discovery. If scientists and researchers are not able to access information about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, they will not be able to advance our understanding of the universe and the potential implications of its discoveries. 
Another risk is that the lack of transparency could lead to an increase in public fear and paranoia. If people do not have accurate information about the nature of UFOs and their potential impact on society, it could lead to panic and chaos, which could be exploited by those who seek to cause harm. This is where whistleblowers play a crucial role because they provide a vital service by coming forward and bringing the truth to light. They risk everything, including their careers, reputations, and even their safety to reveal the truth about the cover-up. They're motivated by a sense of duty and a belief that the public has a right to know the truth. Without the brave actions of whistleblowers, the secret government agencies and corporations involved in the UFO cover-up would continue to operate under a veil of secrecy and the public would remain in the dark about the reality of UFO activity. In the end, the courage and sacrifice of these individuals are essential to the protection of democracy and freedom and to the advancement of scientific progress and public safety. Well, that's going to do it for this part one of this episode of The Forbidden Planet. Hey, I like that one. Uh, we'll talk about the beings involved on the next episode. Until then, I'm your host, Terry Thompson. This is the ABI 1.0 podcast. Try to keep an open mind. See ya.